0: Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. We've been in our series um, on the book of Philippians, and and, uh, I haven't preached for the last couple of weeks, so I might be a little rusty, all right? So you might need a little extra grace today, but I'm looking forward to be able to preach this message again out of uh, Philippians chapter two, we're over halfway through the book, and it won't be much longer now. We're going to finish up this book, and it's been great. I hope that you've enjoyed it. But today I want to talk about star quality Christians. Star quality Christians. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about star quality believers in Christ. And uh, do you have a star quality? You might. You can take a quiz online as well if you need to find that out. But you know, I've never really thought of myself as a star, really, that's for sure. At least not in the way the world defines the term star. Like they would define it, you know, like any person in the world of entertainment or sports, so on and so forth. A recent survey revealed the five most popular stars on Twitter. The list started with Barack Obama, Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Rihanna, Cristiano Ronaldo. Those are the top five. Then keeps going on from there. Few of us have moved into that, and I don't even envy them or their moment in the spotlight, but, you know, it really did make me stop and think, who are the stars from God's point of view according to Scripture? Who are the heavenly celebrities who shine like stars for Christians, this is a familiar image that you've probably read throughout Scripture, heard about many times, where Jesus himself said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And Paul says this, and we're going to get this, to this in just a moment. In chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, you shine like stars in the world. You shine like stars in the world. Now, the word star was used in the first century for a navigational beacon that would shine in the darkness to lead ships safely into harbor. Christians are bright stars in a dark world. Can I hear an amen? Amen. We are put here to shine the light and guide others safely home to God, to bring them to safe harbor in their world. Paul told the Philippians that they were stars in the world. So how do you spot a star-quality Christian? That's what I want to talk about today. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 30 clearly answers this question, and uh, I want to give you five important commitments of star-quality Christians, or should we say, how to get lit, all right? So the first one is, I will do my part. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about, how do we do our part? If we're a star quality Christian, this is what the Apostle Paul he says. So then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's first exhortation work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Most of us, if you probably read this sometime or another and got confused by the statement, because they read it as if work for your salvation. Some people look at that and say, well, that's a working for it. That is impossible because the apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not by works, that you and I cannot work your way into salvation. It is the gift of God, amen? It is the gift of God. So what does this verse mean? I think the answer is found in the next verse where Paul reminds us that it is God who is working in you. He's working in you. Salvation starts with God. He works first in us to save us and then we are to work out what God has already worked in. In the the first century, this meant work out. This word was used for mining silver. That's what it means. Workers would enter the mine And bring out the silver that was already there in the same way we are to work out the implications of our salvation in every area of our life. That God is working in us right now. Could you turn to your neighbor and say, God is working in you? Come on, do that. Even at home, I want you to turn to the person next to you, even your dog. God is working in you. God is working in you today. You've got to know that. You've got to believe that in your heart. God is at work. Listen, if salvation makes no difference in the way you live, what's the point of being saved in the first place? If it doesn't change the way you talk, think, and the way that you make decisions, if it doesn't change your worldview and the way that you evaluate your career, what's the point of being saved at all? Because a salvation that doesn't change you is hardly worth having. Right? What does it mean to work out your salvation? Well, for one thing, it radically changes the way that you and I view God's will for our lives. Here's the great question of life for every believer Am I willing to do God's will with no strings attached at all? Many of us, we put conditions upon our obedience to God. We're willing to obey God if God will promise to keep us safe, He'll keep us healthy. He will guarantee us a great job, a happy family, no problems with our children. Good luck with that one. A long life and good retirement, right? The call of God has always been the same. Come and follow me. That is the call of God from beginning to end. Come and follow me. We're called to follow Christ and to leave all the details in his hands. He says, listen, if you're going to be a star quality Christian in the day that you live... You have to understand, you have to do your part in it. God is the first one that moves towards us because he loves us, but it's important that we do our part as well. The the second thing, I will depend on God. That's what he says, verse 13. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. And I think this is a great, perfect balance here. We do our part because God always does his part first. God always comes to us first, right? Sending Jesus Christ to us. This verse also tells us that God gives both the will and the ability to do what he commands. First, he changes our want to, and then he provides the power to obey. You and I were all sinners one time or another, right? Away from God. And it's through that that we accepted that and said, God, I believe in you. And through that, he changed our want to and our desires to follow after him and to obey his commands. God intends to give us all what we need in every situation so that we can do his will. How? His Holy Spirit is the one that enables us to do it. Amen? It's the work of the power of the Holy Spirit so that we will both desire his will and then also we will be able to do it. You know, what happens is is oftentimes what we do is is, uh, what we lack and we understand we have lack and we conclude that our problems are greater than our potential. But that is not true. But there's constraints of time and energy, money, people, resources are given to us by God again and again. God puts us in a position where we are unable to do anything without his help. He helps us, amen? You got to understand what God demands, he supplies in Christ, right? That means, yeah, you and I have to continue to work out our salvation. He's doing his part. We're doing our part. But what God demands from us, he does supply through the enablement of the power of the spirit. We have to do it. We can't do his will unless we are empowered, and his part involves both giving us the desire and whatever else we need to fulfill the purpose that he has for us, that we should set forth every single day with all the energy we have to do God's will, knowing what that what we need already, what we need in advance to do his will. And he says, listen, if you're going to shine, you got to understand that. you got to depend upon God every single day. Three, I will not complain. This is a hard one right here. Let's just pray. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling and complaining, or your word may say arguing. Star-quality Christians make a third commitment. In the Greek, the word arguing might be better translated as murmuring. It's a murmuring. It's a word whose sound conveys the meaning of, like the English word hiss or hum. It has the idea of muttering. You ever muttered under your... You know, and the person in the cubicle next to you is like, What are you talking about over there? You're muttering, you're complaining, and all of that. That like gets under, yeah, that's what he's meaning. It's like a hum underneath of us. We're just complaining. And we got to understand this that complaining is an attack on God's sovereignty. Every time you complain about your circumstances, you're really saying, If I were God, I would do things differently. Right? If I was God, that wouldn't allow this to happen. But the complainer, has forgotten the first rule of the spiritual life. He's God, and we're not. Because it all comes down to a matter of focus. It's a matter of focus for you and me on how we're going to decide to focus our attention. If all you're focused on is what is negative, that's all you're going to see. No wonder we complain and mutter and murmur under our breath, but when we focus on the Lord and his goodness, we see our problems in the light of eternity. I hope that you begin to see your problems in the light of eternity. And you understand this, that God doesn't work on our timetable. You ever realize that? There's probably not a week that goes by. I'm like, God, can I just get you to come onto my timetable? Has it ever happened? Not once, right? God has a timetable. His timetable is the one that matters. Fourth, I will be different to make a difference. I will be different to make a difference. He says this, so that you may be blameless, impure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, hold firmly the message of life. With this command, what happens, we get to the heart of what he's saying here. Paul uses three words to describe how you and I are supposed to live every single day. The first one is blameless. He says, you should live a life that is above reproach. No serious act, accusation can stick. Number two, you should be pure. What is he saying? High quality. He says you should have high quality, unmixed alloy in your life. Remember, there's silver and gold inside of you and inside of me. And he says, I want that to be unmixed. And then third, it's faultless, fit to be offered to God that is really like a lamb without spot or without blemish in our life, that we are people that are faultless. We will make an impact on the world by our lives that are visibly, observably, measurably, noticeably, and obviously different from the people that are around us every day. We are to be different to make a difference. We're not to be different to be weird. We're to be different to make a difference in the world we live. Our value set us apart from the surrounding culture that is all around us every day and all that we hear. Why should we live this way? Because he's saying you live in a crooked and perverse generation. It is perverted. The word crooked comes from the Greek scolios, which we get the word scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. The word perverted is much stronger in essence, it means crooked by choice. So he said, you know, he says, listen, the reason why you need to live a life that's pure and blameless and faultless is because you live in a very perverted culture. You live in a time where there is so much crookedness that is going on, and so you need to live a life that is according to God's word. I, like you, have read many things about the same-sex marriage debate. And it seems that our nation has decided to embark on a great social experiment in which we will overturn or try to overturn tradition, history, and basic morality to legally recognize homosexual marriage. But I mention that in order to say this, the best apologetic against same-sex marriage will be a truly biblical marriage between a man and a woman lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the answer back to the problem. Let's first show to the world what a marriage designed by God looks like in the first place. It's not going to be perfect because we're all imperfect people, right? There's two imperfect people coming together. So I'm not saying perfect here. That's not what I'm saying. But it always involves the union of two imperfect people. But by the grace of God, Christian marriages can be blameless and pure. Such a marriage will be a thing of beauty. It will be a light shining amid the prevailing cultural ruins of our day. But let us simply and quietly resolve to live out our faith in the most beautiful way possible. By showing forth the glories of Christ Jesus in a truly Christian home. Where the husband and wife truly love each other. Where they would lay down their lives for each other where their children are raised to know and love the Lord, where the home is marked by joy and freedom, commitment, <laughs> holiness, and hospitality. Amen? Amen? Sometimes we're afraid to talk about this subject because, oh, if I say it, I'm going to step on people's toes. Listen, the best apologetic is you and I living a, true, a truly Christian life marriage. And see, that kind of marriage changes the home, but it doesn't stop there. A a true Christian marriage will change a neighborhood, and a city, and a state, a nation, and a world, the Bible says. Oh, it's not going to happen all at once. Never, Not everything does. Not by ourselves, not without the movement of God's spirit, not without spiritual warfare, not without turning to God and depending on him for his help, but it can happen. And the only way this is going to happen is the change we see must start with us. The world could ignore our arguments, but it cannot ignore a godly example. There is no answer for a life, a marriage, and a family transformed by God's Spirit and His power. And when we live that way, the world notices the difference. Shine like stars, and he says, when you shine like that, he says, I want you to hold out the word of life to those that are lost. People will see the way we live, and they're going to notice the difference, and the light of Christ will be seen in us, and they will ask us the reason for the way we live, and it's there that we can share the word of life with them. Then he says, I want you to live for others. I will live for others. He's saying, star quality Christians, that's what it is. I'm gonna live for others. He says, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you in the same way also you should rejoice and share, share your joy with me. Here's the commitment he's saying to live for others and not for self. Paul explains it in two key phrases. First, he says he looks forward to boasting about the Philippians when Christ returns. Paul envisions a day when he will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will give an account of his life and he will give an account of his ministry. In that day, he says, I plan to do this. I plan to boast about the Philippians and what they did in their generation. What will you boast about when you stand before the Lord one day? I mean, God, have you seen my bank account? Oh, wait a minute. I mean, my titles have got to mean something. See, sometimes we negotiate with God about the things that we tangibly own. What will we boast about when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? I think right there is a huge funnel that takes all the other crap around us and the things in our world that we continue to try to live for. And it brings it right down to the cusp of what Paul is saying. Listen, are you gonna to choose to live for others or are you gonna live for you in this? Will you choose to live for the things that are eternal or the things that are temporary? And it's not gonna to matter to the Lord. We bring up all the things we have, own, oh, I did, oh, no, no, that's not, not what it is. But because, why? Because everything else will fade away. When Kristen and I are out in this community, We talk to many people that don't come to this church and then they realize, oh, you go to that church, you're pastor of that church, and people are like, wow, that church is really making an impact. That church is serving the community. And it gives us a great opportunity to come right back and to tell them, man, it is an amazing church filled with amazing, godly people that love others, that serve other people, and I boast about you. We boast about this church because there's so much to boast in to God be the glory. Amen. That's what it should be. We should be able to boast in one another. And second, Paul mentions being poured out as a drink offering on their behalf. I've always been struck with this, to be poured out as a drink offering. And it's the reference to the Old Testament practice of pouring wine on top of an animal sacrifice so that the heat of the fire immediately vaporizes the wine and it turns it into a beautiful aroma. He said this, even if I end up losing my life for you, it won't matter to me as long as you live for Christ. With that statement, we come really to, to the bottom line of Christian service and why we do what we do every single day. With that statement, we come with this. I wonder how many of us can truly say that it doesn't matter whether we live or die so long as the people we know follow the Lord. That you and I are the light of the world. You shine like stars in the world. He says, the world has its stars, but God has his. And then Paul goes on to tell us how we should live for others. I'm gonna talk about that in our remaining time together. How should we live or others. That's why we've been placed upon this earth. How do we go about living our Christian life day to day, week to week, year to year? And he points out that people have to come before prophets. Right? Howard Hendricks said that a Christian person needs three types of people in their life a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Paul represents your spiritual mentor, Barnabas, a close personal friend. Timothy, a disciple who looks to you for leadership. We need mentors and friends and disciples to be well-rounded believers in Christ. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes today as you look back, whether they're alive or whether they've passed on? Who are those people that you look to as role models? Tell me your heroes and I'll tell you your values. Your values are tied to what you believe in and those people that you really look up to. And so Paul goes on in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You understand, Timothy came from a mixed marriage, ethnically and spiritually. His father was a Greek who evidently was an unbeliever, his mother Eunice, as well as his grandmother Lois, was a Jewish convert to Christianity. And Timothy stood out in Paul's mind as a man who cared more for others than he did his own well-being. You know, when we get to heaven, we aren't gonna be asked, are you winner, are you a loser? Forget about your one lost record. The only thing that will matter is what Jesus says to us is well done, good and faithful servant. That is the only thing That will absolutely matter, the Bible says. Well done. Then he talks about this. You want to serve others well? He says, you have to have character before conformity. He says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul said after many months and perhaps years of apprenticeship, Timothy had proved himself. That word approve means to pass a test. It has the idea of demonstrating under pressure that you have the right stuff. He says, This is what I've seen in Timothy. He's a person that under pressure, he's passed the test. It doesn't mean he's perfect. This is more than just a little quiz, this is something he's been placed under and he has passed the test, and there is the right kind of things that God wants that is coming out of him. Note that this kind of proving doesn't happen overnight. Too many people want instant spirituality and overnight maturity, and that never happens, right? God doesn't work that way. He, he never does. Producing Christian character takes time, and it takes effort in our lives. You can't sprint your way to spiritual leadership, right? Right? You've got to do what Timothy did. You've got to put yourself under good leadership and pay the price over time and serve the vision of Christ. Remember, you can buy talent, but you can't buy faithfulness. Amen? The world is trying to buy talent, but you can never buy faithfulness. It's something over time as you place yourself under that that is what God looks for in you and me. Then he says, there's another thing, teamwork before competition. I think it's necessary, he said, to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, Epaphroditus, we know, was a leader in the church of Philippi who was sent by the church with a gift for Paul. His name is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, He doesn't seem to have been like a preacher in the usual sense. He fits more into the mold of what we maybe we think of a deacon, a a godly layman willing to serve, willing to go, willing to risk everything for the cause of Christ. That's the type of man Epaphroditus was. And he uses three terms to describe Epaphroditus. The first one is brother. What is he saying? He's a member of the same family. We're one. The next one is fellow worker. We're members of the same team. He is my equal. Third, he says he's a fellow soldier. He's that that we are warriors for the same cause. He sold out to Christ in that cause. I find it encouraging that Paul didn't pull rank, but instead he went out of his way to praise Epaphroditus to his hometown people. It is said that President Ronald Reagan had a slogan prominently displayed on his desk at at the White House that read, there is no limit to how far a man can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. The Apostle Paul certainly had learned that crucial lesson to put others above himself, to serve the cause that is above him. And then he said, you know another thing? Is that You have to prioritize in your life kingdom before comfort. He says in verse 26, For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus, he faced all these challenges, traveling without the modern-day benefits of modern medicine, And as a result, the disease he contracted nearly took his life. And when the Philippian believers heard about it, they were worried and sent a message to Rome. And that made Epaphroditus distressed because they were so worried about this brother in Christ. You realize that he did it for Christ and his kingdom, and he did it for the sake of Jesus. There's no other explanation that will work. That's why he did it. Epaphroditus, what he did is he stepped out in harm's way and harm had hit him head on. Sometimes that's the way it is in Christ. You step out for Christ and you get head, head on. But it doesn't stop there. We know that you realize that you have to, and I have to prioritize in my life, God's kingdom over our comfort. And the world teaches us today, it's about comfort. Let's pad me, let's isolate me to make me step back rather than to step forward and shine the light of truth of his word. How far are you willing to go for the Lord? G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. my fear is there's a lot of Christians have really put their comfort above the kingdom and if we're called to seek the kingdom first then we need to die to our comforts are you with me really quiet in here what are you willing to sacrifice for the Lord today what are you willing to do? He says, you got to prioritize the kingdom of God over your comfort on this earth. Then, lastly, he says, there has to be service before security. He says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. The message is simple. Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi when he really needed him in Rome. I'm going to send him back to you. You need him. He does this because he doesn't want the church at Philippi to be worried about him. And the message is clear. Hey, you know what? You've got a great man here in Epaphroditus. Give him the honor that he deserves. He risked his life for me. Make sure you show him your appreciation. Verse 30, risking his life. Notice that phrase, risking his life, meaning to expose oneself to danger, to risk, or to gamble. That's what it originally meant. It was, it was used to people who spoke up for their friends at the risk of their own safety and their own security. And I'm willing to speak up because I love them and I care about them. Sometimes it's used as a fighter who exposed himself to danger in the arena of that day that I'm willing to go fight and even lose my life for the sake of everybody else. What are you willing to risk for Christ? Oswald Chambers remarked, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Perhaps perhaps maybe that's our problem that we, we fear God too little and everything else too much. Here's the bottom line. God is looking for a few gamblers now before you walk out of here and tell somebody the pastor told me to gamble I know how this works because we live in the world of sound bites my pastor told me to go gamble no I'm not talking about that I'm talking about the original meaning of this I'm talking about giving your life away to Jesus first and that you'll lay down your life for another person you're willing to do that. that that's what he's saying He's searching high and low for people today that, that, um, that are sanctified risk-takers, if you will. I wonder if we should start a new ministry at Abundant Life Church, Gamblers for Jesus. I bet we'd get a lot of people in this community, wow, they gotta have slot machines over. there. No, I'm not talking about that. No, 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 Gamblers for Jesus. There, 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 there are people there that are willing to risk it all for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they really care about everyone. They, they, they love everyone. Because why? Well, everybody gambles their life on something. I mean, what are you gambling today on today? What is it? What are you, what are you throwing the dice out there for? Man, I just hope on hope, and I, I hope I... Paul said, I'm I'm looking for spiritual risk takers. And that's what God's looking for. That's a star quality. I'm looking for risk takers. Not people that are just wanting to just, I'm just going to live it safe. Live it safe. God's speaking to somebody here right now. Everybody gambles their life on something. I don't know about you, but I'm putting my money on Jesus. Where are you putting yours today? You're putting your money on something that won't last in the first place. Why? Most of those things have no eternal value. Not a single one at the end of the day. We lay our heads down at night. We work our lives out. We work our salvation out that he's called us to live. We find very quickly what really matters to Jesus. So today, would you just take a moment inside and say, God, what are you speaking to me right now that you have called me to do? And I am fighting you. And today, I will not fight another moment longer. I'm going to lay this down. I'm going to lay this down because you're working in me. And I'm going to work for you. And I'm going to submit and yield my, my way, my plan, my desire today to your plans and your desires, Lord. What are you risking your life for? What is it get you out of bed in the morning? Loving your family? Loving the Lord and doing the things that He's called you to do? Let's be spiritual risk takers in the world that we live in. God needs more spiritual risk takers than ever before. Father, I thank you today. Thank you for your love to us, Lord. Thank you for your incredible heart for us today, God, to do your will. Father, I pray today as we look in Philippians chapter 2, that as we read in here, we know, God, you're the first mover to us. That why we were yet sinners, you died for me, for us. And that, God, you have called us through that to be people that work out our salvation with you in the difficulties and the struggles and the joy that we have today, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before you, God, because you're the only one that matters. You're the only one that matters, God. Father God, I pray right now that these qualities that you have called us to live, I pray that today, Lord, as we've gone through them, we've read your word, that I believe, Holy Spirit, you have tugged on people's hearts in this room. Maybe it's one of them, maybe it's a couple of them, maybe it's all of them that we realize I need to work on this area and I need to die to these things that I keep trying to make happen in my life and they have no eternal value. Today, Lord, may we die to that and may we die to ourselves so that, God, we can live for you and we can truly live for others so that we will shine like stars and that we would hold out the word of life. Because you've called us to be different, to make a difference. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's power That enables us to do it. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.